The views, ideas, and content of well seekers and their guests are their own opinions, and you should always seek additional professional help around any of the issues discussed here on Well Seekers. Hello and welcome back to Well Seekers as we start our next series on how to rise and come back. This series is one that is very special to me for many reasons. It's something that's been on my radar for a long time just because I have many people in my life and my family um, that have had cancer, all stages of cancer. And I've noticed just in being in the world over the last handful of years. And even when I was growing up and now into my adulthood, that it feels like more and more, I know people who have been diagnosed with cancer and most recently really late stage cancer. So I started to do what I do, which is research, um, which brought us to this series that we are doing um, for the next handful of weeks on the holistic aspects of cancer and how to heal, grow, thrive in the face of either a cancer diagnosis yourself or having a loved one who does have cancer. In this series, we are going to be talking to doctors and nutritionists and therapists um, and hearing people's stories who have cancer and deal with cancer on a daily basis. Before we launch into the series, I think it's important to know just how prevalent cancer is currently. Uh, You're going to find a lot of different studies on the burden and increase of cancer worldwide. Uh, Medical News Today had a pretty comprehensive article on some of the increases that I thought are worth diving into. 8.7 million people worldwide received a cancer diagnosis 10 years ago. Uh, The total deaths from cancer numbered 8.29 million. So if you're a stats person, we'll just do this together. (laughs) Um, we'll run this statistic together. So if you're, if 18.7 million people were diagnosed, um, that's a 44% rate of people who ended up passing away from cancer. If we fast forward to current statistics, those numbers have increased significantly. 23.6 million people just a few years ago received a cancer diagnosis, a new cancer diagnosis, um, and deaths only rose with 10 million cancer deaths. So we still are looking at if you take 10 million and you divide it by 23.6, so this is the most, one of the most recent, you're still looking at a 43% um, cancer death rate. So this is impactful. I think at some point when people said cancer, because there are so many treatments and cutting in treatments, and because I think just personally, if I, if I'm looking at my own experience with it, I've heard the word so much that it's like, okay, well, maybe this will be a blip and um, the person will get through it. Right. But that's not always the case. If we look at these numbers, 23.6 million and 10 million deaths, that's 43% of people who will unfortunately succumb to cancer. That is big. Right. And even those 23.6 million people receiving the new cancer diagnosis, knowing that there's some percent chance um, that this illness is going to be fatal to them. It's a heavy impact physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially. If you've had someone in your family with a cancer diagnosis, you know how weighty that is. It wasn't until someone I loved and is significantly close to me, someone in my family who was diagnosed recently with stage four cancer, that I became a day-to-day caregiver of someone who had such an advanced stage 
cancer diagnosed to them that I actually realized what all those words I've heard throughout the years, right? Like chemotherapy and radiation and holistic care and make sure if you're a caregiver, you're taking care of your mental health, right? I heard all these words and I knew them logically, but emotionally, I did not know what any of that meant. Um, and so often, isn't that the case that until we're in the experience ourselves, we don't fully understand the emotional impact that these experiences have. Um, that was one of the main drivers, because when I was in this experience, I realized how much holistic care is needed, right? Absolutely there are benefits in traditional medicines, traditional treatments, but that holistic component was something that I saw not only for my loved one who has cancer, but for myself more than ever come into play, right? So these are the things we're going to be talking about nutrition and holistic care um, and all of these aspects. So just to break it down a little bit for you, according to the World Health Organization, if we break down those 23.0 million um, people receiving new diagnosis. Some of the leading causes of cancer, the leading cancers within that are uh, breast cancer, lung cancer, and colon and rectal cancer. What's interesting is everyone that I know that currently has cancer, which unfortunately is a lot of people, um, they all do have breast, lung, and colon cancer. My loved one that I was talking about previously has colon cancer and it is stage four. It spread to the liver, the lungs, and the lymph nodes, although the lymph nodes is questionable. Uh, but within this diagnosis, what's interesting is that he is part of a group of young onset um, colorectal cancer, which is growing exponentially. There is this young group of people which within colon cancer means before the age of 50, now they've moved testing down to 45 and partially because there's been such an increase in young onset colorectal cancer. Um, this is not something that's talked about a lot. Some of our guests have personally experienced it. A lot of them have definitely worked with it, but this rise in um, individuals under the age of 50 getting colorectal cancer and why they say they don't know, but there is a lot to environment and when I say environment, toxic chemicals, food, right? All of these different aspects and layers that um, come into play when we're talking about cancer. One of the most staggering statistics that I saw when I was doing research for this series was, and th there are two different statistics depending on who, who you read. Um, so I'll just give you the range, but by the year 2050, so in about 28 years, um, there is going to be a 50 to 70% increase in cancer diagnosis. So we let that just sit and set in, sink in for a moment, right? So think of those 20, almost 24 million people, a 50 to 70% increase over the next about 25 years in cancer diagnosis. So I do feel that this show talking about prevention, talking about what to do if you're in this is so critical, crucial right now. So for all those who are struggling, for all those who want to work on prevention and trying to prevent a cancer diagnosis, and for anyone out there that just needs a little support, whether you have cancer, we have a loved one with cancer, this series is for you. And we are so honored to be doing it. Um, our very first guest, Dr. Anissa Patel is coming on. She is a doctor overseas in the UK. She is also, um, also was diagnosed with colorectal cancer 
about four years ago. So she has a very powerful personal story and just exceptional professional expertise as well. We are so honored to have her on the show. She's going to be joining us in just a minute. We'll be back in just a minute with our very first guest on this impactful and important series on how to rise, come back, and cope if you or a loved one has cancer or if you want to work on cancer prevention. We'll be right back on Well Seekers. You're listening to Well Seekers, a show where the journey is just as important as the destination. Welcome back to Well Seekers, and we are so honored to have our very first guest of this series focused on rising, coming back from cancer, Dr. Anisha Patel. Dr. Anisha is a GP partner working at Holbrook Surgery in West Sussex. Anisha has a degree in medicine from the University of Birmingham. She received that degree in 2002 and has worked as a junior doctor in and around Birmingham while training to initially become a hospital consultant in respiratory medicine. But after working in hospital for six years, she took a leap and moved into general practice, um, taking her skills into the community. In September of 2018, she was unexpectedly diagnosed with advanced bowel cancer. And since her diagnosis, her aim has been to not only complete treatment, recover and survive, but she has been driven to use her unique experience as a doctor and a patient to help those navigating cancer as well. Dr. Anisha, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us on WellSeekers. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be able to obviously share share my story and, and hopefully insight into into sort of cancer as a as a doctor and and as a patient. You truly have that unique experience of patient and doctor. And one of the things that I've learned recently, having a loved one with advanced stage cancer, is how confusing the system is <laughs> and how you think you know things about cancer, but once you're in the system. And this is over here in the States, which is one of the reasons we were so excited to have you on is because you have such a a unique perspective as well overseas, because I know that treatment is different there. So we'd love to hear a little bit as, as comfortable as you are sharing about your own personal experience as a patient. Yeah, no, of course, of course. So I was diagnosed with stage 3B um, bowel cancer or rectal cancer, more specifically, um, back in 2018. Um, I Basically, it started as sort of tiredness. I was a busy mum of two young children, five and a six-year-old at the time. I just made partnership in my practice. Everything was going well, but I felt really tired. And so I went, you know, to my GP thinking I feel tired, had blood tests, they're all normal and didn't think anything of it. And then I thought I was experiencing some IBS symptoms because of stress. And I think, you know, as a doctor, you you have that extra foresight that you almost start diagnosing yourself. Um, and I guess to a point, that's what I was doing. Um, and actually, as the year went on, the symptoms got worse. I'd always had some piles on and off with the children uh, post-birth. So I thought that was just sort of bleeding from the piles. Um, getting a bit more constipated, fatigued, needing the toilet more. Um, and then I actually said to my husband, who, oh, you wouldn't write this, but he was the director of the bowel cancer screening program. I said, this is this is what I'm experiencing. He had no idea. And of course, he said, you need to go and get checked. Um, but neither of us as doctors thought cancer, because by all rules and probability, 
Um, it was unlikely. We both know young people get bowel cancer. My husband sees young people with bowel cancer all the time. But with with my history and no family history and my way of living, it was it was unlikely. So we thought we'd have something like inflammatory bowel disease. And I was seen, and even my consultant thought, no, she's probably got biles and irritable bowel syndrome. And, and then I was diagnosed and I saw my cancer. I knew as a doctor what I was looking at, even through all the drugs and the haze that he'd given me. Um, I knew that something was wrong and I knew that this, this looked cancerous. And, you know, from that point, the world came crashing down. And I think what was difficult for me was being the patient on the other side. I didn't, I really struggled with the loss of control that, that, that being the patient and not the doctor sort of had on me. I use the word system, right? You sort of enter that system, which to me was truly watching it side by side with someone. And I was just baffled by the lack of control. It seemed um, like my significant other had. So can you talk about your experience sort of entering that system as a patient and maybe even just explaining what the system was like for you? So yeah, entering that system, I think for my husband and I, I mean, we just, I completely fell apart and lost control. And actually, I think I just went into a state of shock. I I couldn't make a decision, yet here I was, uh, you know, a professional in my own right, but I couldn't make decisions about what was going to happen to me. And actually, my poor husband, and, and you will have experienced as well, a lot of it, you know, it fell to him. And I think as he went into very much doctor mode and sort of took himself, tried to remove himself as much as he could out of it to make sure that I, you know, was going the right way in the system. And there is that foresight that we have, um, that we know, and he particularly knew what would happen next. And he was always one step ahead of what I was thinking because he deals with bowel cancer patients all the time. So he was always like, well, she's got backache. Has it spread to her spine? We need to get an urgent MRI. And so for me, that was almost, there was sometimes I felt being a doctor, knowing knowing too much it was like a double double-edged sword and I really really struggle with that and you feel very vulnerable you know I'm not sure how you and um, your partner felt but I just felt very vulnerable in that system and I just I just wanted everyone just to do the best by me and wanted to just trust them fully and implicitly that they would do that mm. I'm so curious because what a unique position to be in having your husband such an expert in, in the field, what are some of the things that he thought ahead on that someone right now, maybe they have a loved one with cancer, isn't thinking of that you have sort of a unique vision into to offer that expertise and foresight? Yeah, I think, I don't think all of it is helpful if I'm being completely honest, because I think you can catastrophize about it. You know, you can, you can go through all the worst case scenarios and what if this and what if that. And I think when you're in a state of shock, that often does happen. But I think it's trying to think about the practicalities of surgery and how you'll manage and the fact that when we had children, we needed people to rally around us and we needed a team to help us. And we wanted to keep the family life going as much as possible for the children to attend everything and for meals. And we had an amazing, what we call a dream team of people dropping us food, dropping us 
things round, taking me out on walks, keeping my spirits up when, you know, I was at really low points during chemotherapy and also knowing, having that foresight, what chemotherapy will do. But equally, I think that a lot of us um, make assumptions when it comes to cancer. So when I was told I would have chemotherapy, I assumed I would lose all my hair. Um, And actually a lot of the chemotherapy agents, you don't lose all your hair. I lost a third of my hair, but I kept a lot of it too. And I think, you know, having been on this, and I don't like using the word journey, but I will use it, you know, being on this journey as as a cancer patient has taught me so much and has made us both better doctors for it. And not just in terms of understanding the process, but that empathy that you will you will understand that when my husband breaks a diagnosis of cancer now, it's not just the patient, it's the ripple effect that it will have on that whole family and friendship circle and their work and everything else. It's just monumental. And I don't think you can ever fully appreciate that till you've been through it. Absolutely. I'm so curious. Journey is a word that we use a lot. And words are so important and that resonation with words. What is it about journey that you don't like using? I think, I think journey, when you think about a journey, you almost want to think about positive growth. And actually this journey has given me positive growth, which is why I'm comfortable about using it now. But when I embarked on this, you know, it's not a journey that I wanted to take. Um, It's definitely... Um, I think it's just more of the whole experience rather than a journey. And and if we call it a journey, it's a very bumpy journey at that. But as I say, I think now having come out and I'm now three and a half years in remission, you know, I am really happy to say that this has been a journey, but I know a lot of cancer patients struggle with it. And you're absolutely right. Cancer patients, there are real divides in terminology that being used. Um, For example, terminal cancer was something that people often used for people with stage four cancer, but actually there is a lot of stage four cancer patients out there living life and living with cancer. And that's actually what we, you know, we should say, you could say living with incurable cancer, um, but terminal very much sounds like they're on their deathbed this second. Um, and there's all sorts of things that, you know, battle, people don't want to go to war and win battles. You know, it's, it doesn't mean because someone died, they lost their battle. They fought as hard as they could, you know, to, to get through it. And, and, and they, and they died, but they didn't lose the battle. Mm. And I think think words like battle can be really um, difficult for some people as well. Completely agree. And I think that acknowledging the impact of words for patients is so important Um, and checking in with patients on that. I know that Um, My family member's doctor will use terminal because it is stage four. And he's always like, do not use that word (laughs) because I plan on living a really long time. You can say it's incurable, which he's sort of a miracle story. um, And it's in the 0.05% of results right now. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Clinically unexplainable. What has happened in his own um, experience with cancer but they would use that word. And mentally he just needed that word to stop, be, stop, stop using that word is what he would try and communicate yet. They would keep using it. Um, so I do think listening to patients and following their lead on what they need to hear or not hear is so vital and important. 
Uh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, that's something that's been a massive learning thing for me as well. Like what you can say as a doctor can really stick with patients forever and have a real negative impact. Um, and so we have to choose our, our words carefully. And actually, if we're unsure, I would just ask the patient now, what, what would you like me to, you know, call, call your cancer, call the, the pathway that you're going through now, you know, because it is very individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think before we get into some of the treatments, which I know um, are so important to talk about, why do you think there is such a significant rise? I mean, 50 to 70% young onset colorectal cancer, you, I'm assuming because you do have two young children, you're young, right? Yeah, um, so you probably weren't thinking rectal cancer, um, to some degree, why do you think there is such a rise? in the prevalence. Yeah. So I was diagnosed at 39 and through the community I've met often online for for that support, you know, I'm not alone. It's on the rise. It's been documented on the rise. Um, and it particularly in young, young females and what they've seen is that it's often rectal. So there is something there that, that needs to be studied. And that's what they are doing at the minute. They are studying this, whether it's something to do with the gut microbiome. Um, this is all under investigation because this, this rise is being seen all through Europe, um, not just in the UK and, and in the US as well, there've been studies. So this is a worldwide rise um, and this is going to have implications. And, you know, people, People can say, oh, you know, a third of bowel cancers are lifestyle related. So, you know, eating a high um, a diet for a higher with red meat, processed meat, alcohol, lack of fiber. So we should all be eating more than 30 grams of fiber a day, not exercising, excess alcohol. But actually, a lot of these young women didn't fit those categories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's something else. There is something else. I didn't fit that category, you know, those categories. I've got no family history. My genetics were tested. You know, um, I, I, you know, there is something still that we don't know about. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I've done so much research on that as I'm sure you have as well. And the microbiome is obviously a huge focus. We're at Dana-Farber. I'm not sure if you know Dana-Farber here. Mm-hmm in the States. Um, they're doing a lot of research on and our doctor specifically was doing something on microbiome. It's going to be interesting to see how this evolves and why there is such a rise, especially in colorectal. We're definitely staying on top of that. So we'll stay in touch. Um, we'll have to watch that space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that treatment is something that uh, talking about pathways, it, it feels like in, especially when they said stage four, they said, this is sort of the wild West. Um, we're going to try some things and then we're going to adjust as we go. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about your experience with pathways to treatment and um, also how they vary, right? Country to absolutely. country even, which is something we found. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, treatment for bowel cancer, when I was a medical student and I'm going to, you know, obviously give things away back in 2000, I remember sitting on the colorectal ward. It was my first placement. And I remember being told that there and learning the stats of the cancer at the stage that I had it, I had a 50% chance of dying within five years. So I wouldn't see, I had a you know, 50, 50 chance of seeing out five years. So when I, when I heard that I was diagnosed with that stage, you know, I'm going back to my medical school years, 20 years ago, going, oh my God. But actually 
that it is an ever-evolving field. There have been so many advances sort of transforming patient outcome. And actually my stage of cancer, I was told on paper, um, you know, I've got a one in four chance of seeing five years out. Bearing in mind, most of the papers and studies have been done in much older populations, not in people my age with, you know, you otherwise well health. Um, so that, you know, I was told to take it with a pinch of salt. So I had what we call the traditional treatment because my spread was um, only to lymph nodes locally around the rectum area. So I had laparoscopic keyhole surgery, again, something that has been uh, life changing to many, because if you think about it, you're having major, major abdominal surgery now through a keyhole. Um, and I've barely got any scars and actually the um, what we call morbidity and sort of the complications and life quality of life should be better after you've had keyhole surgery. Um, and so I had um, a stoma given to me initially uh, to allow my bowel to heal. Um, and I actually had my stoma reversed very early. I had it reversed and then um, another major surgery three weeks later to repair this. And then I went on to three months of chemotherapy and I had an oxaliplatin and capcitabine regime, which is standard here in the UK um, for, for the stage of cancer that I had. Now, when you're going on to stage four, um, Often, obviously, at that point, you've got metastatic disease, where you, which means you've got cancer deposits elsewhere in the body. Um, lungs and liver are the common um, places where cancer spreads, as well as the lymph nodes. And they will try chemotherapy on you. But what they will often do is try and test the cancer tissue. OK, because we know now that we can give immunotherapy or targeted cancer therapies for cancers that express different proteins or gene types. Um, and that really is groundbreaking because we are now giving um, individual personalized care depending on your cancer cells, because one person's bowel cancer cells may be different from another person's cancer cells. They may have different genetics. They may express different proteins or molecules or receptors. So this is, this is just phenomenal. And, you know, immunotherapy here in the UK um, is licensed. In the States, there tends to be um, uh, freer because it, obviously it's not a state system and you pay for your healthcare. There is a lot more available in the United States. Um, but the same, obviously similar research has been done. And immunotherapy basically uses our own immune system, um, specifically the T cells to attack the cancer cells. Um, and here in the UK, we've got Keytruda, which is the drug, and it's best specifically used for those with Lynch syndrome, which is that genetic con condition, HMPCC, where they have this condition where they have a high microsatellite instability. It's about 5% of bowel cancers, and they think the prognosis is worse in these individuals, and they often don't respond to standard chemo, which is why it's so important that we test the tissue mm. to make sure that we're giving the right chemo. And these this treatment should shrink you know, cancer spread and metastases. Um, so it delays time for the cancer to grow. You've then also got the targeted therapy. Again, you've got a lot more of these monoclonal antibodies, which is what they're called, available in the States um, that are given for people with different mutations, for example, the BRAF mutations. And what's fantastic about targeted therapy 
is it just targets the cancer cells, so specifically the enzymes or proteins that the cancer cells are sort of um, got inside them, which promote growth. So it leaves your normal cells alone, unlike chemotherapy, which wipes everything out. And again, this can be used alone or with chemotherapy. So, you know, these these advances have been in the last 10 years and it's huge and it's changed. It's changed the prognosis with those for stage four cancer in terms of you can live with with this. It might be incurable, but you can live and these therapies are prolonging life for some. Just to clarify some of the words that you use, because I know I didn't know them before, <laughs> for with cancer. So stoma bag. Uh, stoma that is that's a bag right so it's um it, could you explain it a little bit more for yeah, people sure. that... so um when i had my cancer removed um the tissue is very delicate there so what they do is to allow the the new join to heal they take out a bit of my bowel and they literally i had a little um a uh, bit of bowel sticking out of my belly and over that i would cover with a bag um, with a sort of plastic bag that basically catches your poo and it's almost liquid poo. It's coming from my small bowel. It's allowing my large bowel and rectum to heal before it's basically plumbed back together. And, you know, it was difficult having a stoma bag. I'm not going to lie. You know, it was, I'd had major bowel surgery. I had to get up and change it several times. The bowel was very unhappy, you know, but it was essential. It's a life-saving bit of kit um, and some people with bowel cancer have permanent stomas because of where their tumor was. Um, they no longer can go for a poo, you know, through the bottom normal route, through the anus. They have to now poo into a bag, essentially. And, you know, life after bowel cancer surgery is is massive. The new normal is really difficult to navigate because you have dysfunctional bowel movements you know you and, and it's something that can be at every extreme and and it's something that we all have to learn to live with mm-hmm. um and for some people they can't get out the house initially it's 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 utterly terrifying but a stoma bag at least allows you that freedom initially that you, you, you it's in a bag it's so interesting when you're talking about um your process very similar to the one that we just went through chemotherapy wise surgery wise Um, The interesting thing that you were talking about to me was the DNA testing, right? The testing of the actual genetic makeup of tumors and how important that is. There's so many different intricacies that, that I've learned of recently within the mutation specifically, right? So do you know what a KRAS mutation is? Yeah, so that that's one of the other mutations that that um, requires specific treatment. I'm really curious there because I know in the states there's not a lot of research on targeted therapies for KRAS. Are, do you feel country to country there's different procedures, protocols, um, testing, um, and therapies done? So specifically, if someone has something, I'm just using KRAS because it's one of the other mutations that I know here. Yep. There's not a lot of targeted therapies for. Is that something if someone is listening and they have a KRAS that the UK is spending time on or another country is spending time on? Um, or could you speak to that in any way? So usually it is it will all be determined by what your oncologist thinks and, and, and also um, where the spread is. So when people make decisions about treatment, it really, it's so multifactorial. It's not just on your mutation. It's, you know, 
lots of other factors have to be taken into consideration. And I imagine that there are variations of protocols from countries to country. Obviously, in England and the UK, sorry, we're governed by NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, and, and what gets passed is NHS, state-funded treatment. Um, there are treatments that people can pay for privately, and we often do get a lot of people crowdfunding in the UK for treatment because it's not available on our state system that may be available in another country, for example, the state. So when I see a lot of patients advocating for themselves, doing their research, going to their oncologist and saying, what about this? What can I do for this? But there isn't a, there isn't a one fit all um, for, for, the, for, for a specific mutation. It's definitely something that you need to speak to your oncologist. And as I say, many patients do end up researching it a lot um, to try and get, because actually you want, you want to have that new treatment. There's always things coming along. And that's the other thing to say, clinical trials, there are often clinical trials going on in each country. And if you know, are aware or able to find out, for example, if they're doing a KRAS clinical um, trial, you know, there is an opportunity to do that and potentially have treatment that might become standard treatment in five or 10 years time. We just don't know until that study's done. I like the idea of just taking a step back, right? Because treatment is so individualized and yes, like, like you said, right? Like exploring all the pathways. If that's in the UK or the States or somewhere else, there are so many different trials going on and it isn't one size fits all treatment, which I think sometimes we're pre-programmed to think it is. So I know that that distinction has been life altering. And I'm sure for a lot of other patients, just knowing there's other alternatives to explore opens up so much mentally and physically and pathway wise. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think so. And I've seen and followed um, people's own experiences of this. And I've seen, you know, I've seen they've had to research for themselves. I've seen they've, as I say, have to raise money for their own treatment. And you will do what you need to do to, to the, for the treatment that you think you might need, especially if you're coming to um, the end of sort of standard lines of treatment, you know, you've done surgery, you've done chemo, we've done some of the targeted therapy. We've tried one immunotherapy. Okay, is there something else that we can do now? Dr. Patel, I know we only have a few more minutes. So I just want to leave some space for you. If there's something we missed or that you feel is like vital to share for those that are either navigating care, because so often that is a loved one navigating care, or you are someone um, with cancer, newly diagnosed, maybe struggling to find your pathway do you have any final wisdom, advice, experience to share? I think what people need to really, and what I didn't realize, is actually the life beyond and after diagnosis of cancer is actually probably the, the hardest bit. So whether you've come off treatment or whether you're then living with lifelong treatment, adjusting to that new normal is the tricky bit. And that's when we want family and friends to not fall by the wayside, but actually that's when they need you more. And that's what I found is, you know, when you finish treatment, people will breathe and take a sigh and sort of all step back. But actually those three to six months afterwards are actually when you're at your most vulnerable physically and psychologically. And I think that's really important for patient, family, friends, and everyone out there to realize. Dr. Patel, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We are going to have your social media links for people to follow you, but any other place that people can find you that you'd like to share? Yeah. So I'm at, at doctors get cancer too on Instagram. And I'm also on Twitter at doctors uh, get cancer too. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm yeah. Just please do come and find me. 
Thank you so much for taking the time and we'll be right back on Well Seekers. Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless and with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data. Coast to coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico. Plus, text and data in over 210 countries worldwide. All with the best phones or bring your own. That's pretty awesome. Get the best user experience on mobile at PulseCellular.com. Thanks for being part of the Seekerhood. We couldn't do this without you. Now, back to the show. Thank you so very much to our guest again for being here on Wall Seekers. Uh, make sure to follow her. All of her social media handles will be in the write-up, so make sure that uh, you follow her. Also, feel free to follow us. We love talking with you, communicating with you online. There's also a button if you're listening now to subscribe to the show. Um, we we were honored. We had a, um, a blip where we were number eight on the iTunes charts in mental health um, for a week. We quickly fell actually back down to number 200, but I think that, or 167, I think that that is just such a testament to how much people want to live bright and well, um, to rise, to come back, to shine in this life and how much we know now that that is a holistic thing, right? Mind, physical, other physical bodies, spiritual bodies, emotions, right? All of these things that go in, um, it isn't just one layer. We all know, I think that this is a holistic uh, wellness is a holistic approach, and we are so happy and so honored to be leading the way in those conversations with well seekers. So um, please follow us, reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you, love to meet you. And also you can find us um, by subscribing. So we're out there. We're here. We're waiting for you. We'd love to have you in our well seekers family. Um, and we love to talk to you. So reach out to us and thanks so much for truly, truly being a part of my journey. This is a highlight of my experience and my days. I am my, everyone that knows I'm licensed as a, as a therapist, but I'm also a holistic health coach. And I truly believe in the personal and professional power of holistic healing. But I also, my first love was storytelling and journalism. And that was my career for many, many, many years. Um, and mixing these two is my goal to give you the stories and solutions so that you can live bright and well. So thank you for letting me be here and helping you do that. From all of us here at Well Seekers, thanks for being a part of our journey and our family. We love you deeply. Um, and we, I, we truly mean that. I truly mean that. So thank you. We'll be back real soon with our next series. Um, we're going to have a very special guest. She is a nutritionist um, and she is going to help us with prevention and foods if you um, are dealing with cancer or want to help with prevention of cancer. So come back real soon. And thanks for being a part of our journey here at Wellseekers. How would you like to join the conversation? Email us anytime at hello at wellseekers.com. 